My name is Tommy Andrews and welcome to the SoundSpring podcast. This is the place where creative musicians share the ways in which they turn their stories, ideas and feelings into sound. During each episode, my guest composers will take you on a guided journey through one of their musical works. This is music straight from the source. After spending nine years growing up between Oman and Jordan, Sarah's family moved to Cornwall in order to provide her and her siblings with their desired education. Loaned a cello by her school, Sarah made short work of reaching a high level, gaining a scholarship to the Cheatham School of Music aged 12 and then attending the Royal Northern College of Music for her degree. Sarah performed for giants of the cello world, including Stephen Isilis and Yo-Yo Ma, as well as performing the Sasson Cello Concerto with the Halle Orchestra. However, after suffering from burnout and feeling lost with the cello, Sarah took a detour from music to become a classroom teacher for four years. Luckily for us, though, a moment of madness took hold whilst walking past Matt and Fred's jazz club in Manchester. Sarah got up and sang a number at the jam session and found her expressive musical spark again. She quit her teaching job and moved to London and was soon working with the best names in the business. She now has two albums to her name as a bandleader and was awarded Best Jazz Vocalist at the British Jazz Awards in 2019. I first got to play with Sarah when she was invited to play with the London City Big Band as part of our monthly residency at the Spice of Life in Soho. I was absolutely astonished by her expressiveness, her flair and authenticity. And one way you know a vocalist is the real deal is when there's this atmosphere of excitement in the band when they learn who is guesting, and that certainly is the case with Sarah. So I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce one of my favourite jazz vocalists working in the world today, the breathtaking Sarah Dowling. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on board. I'm a massive fan of your performing, your writing. The way you sing just brings me so much joy and I can't wait to share your music and your approaches with all of the listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tommy, for having me. I appreciate it. So we're going to be talking about a song that you co-wrote with Rob Barron the great piano player yes um it's called you've got my heart on a string so firstly can you tell us who's performing on this recording the musicians are rob Barron on the piano jeremy brown on the double bass and matt home on the drums it was uh, recorded for my debut album as a jazz singer from shadows into light uh, in 2000 2015 i think seems a long time ago now that's a real creme de la creme of British jazz <laughs> rhythm sections. Yes, yeah, fa- oh, fantastic musicians. I can't believe I, I recorded my first album starting with, with people like that. Very lucky. So before we start listening to the song, we're just going to go a little bit back into what got you to the point you're at now. So firstly, um, you have an incredibly interesting heritage coming from Irish and Jordanian parentage. I don't think I've ever met anyone that has that heritage. Um, what what effect do these really rich cultures have on your artistry and your 
outlook on music? Um, well, I think they they have a positive and a negative effect on on well on myself as a person, uh, and therefore in turn as a musician. Uh, I think growing up in two completely different cultures, you can almost feel like you don't belong anywhere. You can't define where home is. It's it's amazingly settling to feel that you can tell somebody where your home is. And for me, I've never really felt I've been able to do that. So it's a kind of, you, you live with this slightly unsettling feeling. And um, therefore, you don't necessarily fit in or therefore you don't conform <laughs> always. And this can this can sometimes be a little tiring. But... At the same time, you it adds to you being a colourful person, I think, because you don't you don't have a set way of doing things which could have been created by growing up in a certain way. So for me, I was I grew up in Amman, Jordan, a, a very bustling capital city of a Middle Eastern country, and then when my parents decided to emigrate, we went to. Brixton for a bit and then <laughs> to a tiny isolated farm in the middle of Cornwall so those extremes have definitely added to who I am as as as, a, as an artist I think. So I remember from talking to you that you mentioned growing up you listened to loads of instrumentalists um, mm. like Lester Young and, and Ben Webster and, and sax players with that from that kind of swing era um, you also spent your childhood studying cello to a really high level. So what impact do you think your instrumental background and influences have had then on your singing and your use of expression as a vocalist? A huge impact. Um, firstly, come, you know, starting out as an instrumentalist and now being a singer, I, I, I don't think, um, I mean... I don't really know how a lot of other singers work, but I imagine in my mind that I don't think I approach my song learning in in the way that a singer normally would. I remember um, I remember saying to a piano player once how important it was for me to know the harmonic progression of a song, and uh, and I remember his reply was. Um, how do you think you're going to sing the song better <laughs> uh, by knowing a bunch of two five ones? you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I would imagine this to be the thought of many jazz, jazz players, you know, society's uh, perfect idea of a jazz singer. But, you know, basically piano players saying, let me do my job and you do yours. But it's funny, I don't, I don't work like that. I don't think I'll ever work like that. You know, uh, I, I have to know every single part of the music for me to truly feel that I'm part of the ensemble. You know, it's kind of like uh, sometimes I've 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 witnessed that scenario where um, I feel like the band are comping behind me uh, in a way that they think I, I, I should be singing the song. And then when I've sung the head, they suddenly start interacting with each other. And that and I found that really, really I noticed that as, you know, being a very difficult feeling on stage that I wanted to be part of that interaction. And I was used to that, you know, when you're in a string quartet. 
your role as a cellist is not just playing the bass line. You are, you are matching your tone with the other members of the string quartet. Sometimes you will take the score and you will uh, be concentrating on the viola part or then the next time you'll be concentrating on the first violin part to understand where you, you harmonically fit in the string quartet. So that's how my, that my way of thinking. So now suddenly I come along and I'm a jazz singer and people just expect me to sing, sing the song. Uh-uh, not going to work. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You know, I've been thinking, um, I, I've been thinking as an instrumentalist for so long and I yearn for that integrated role in, in the ensemble as a singer and I'll never be able to shake that off. And I'm proud of it. So when you transitioned from the cello to pursuing a professional singing career, did you undergo any issues or doubts regarding your new identity or was it actually a case of finding finally finding a genuine identity that maybe had eluded you before? It was definitely both both those things. I think initially I struggled with that, with the transition of, you know, going from being an instrumentalist to a singer. I mean, for, for the obvious, well, for the few obvious reasons. Imagine having learnt music behind an instrument for so long and then suddenly <laughs> you have to go and stand at the front of the stage with, with n- no physical thing in front of you and uh, that's that's really really hard and I and that's one of the thing I I love most about singers those really great singers you see that they don't need any aid they have this complete security with themselves for that moment on stage perhaps off stage they don't feel that way but for that moment in the music they feel complete certainty of who they are and they and they're open and they're vulnerable and I, and I think that's been the greatest thing I've learnt being a singer is to embrace that feeling. And I don't think instrumentalists truly feel that, that, that kind of feeling on stage than the way singers do. When, when you first did that, did you feel like a big burden had lifted off? perhaps yes. or was it just incredibly scary <laughs> no 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 i you're you're right uh, uh, and very observant i did i did feel a burden had been lifted and this actually brings me on to the second part of this question when when you said uh, do you feel that perhaps it was an identity that eluded you well I, I think now i can say in retrospect it was it was uh, a freedom that i was looking for in the music a freedom to express myself exactly the way I wanted. And I think that's why I became a singer and I turned to jazz. Because I know classical musicians will say, well, we have freedom in our music, but I don't believe it's as much as a jazz singer, as a jazz musician is able to have. I mean, I'll never forget that first time I got up and, and sang with a rhythm section behind me. And uh, that feeling where they go on, girl, sing it how you want to. Just say what you want to say. And, the, and, and every part of the music was kind of coming together. Um, and everybody, you know, doing their own thing and interjecting. And, and not a word was spoken. Not a rehearsal was needed. And that's something very special about being a jazz musician, I think. Earlier we were talking about how maybe you felt that as a vocalist you were considered to be separate from say the rhythm section you were working with have you ever felt any pressures as a female vocalist to kind of be a certain way or tick certain boxes you know appear to be something that maybe you 
weren't, in all honesty? Well, first of all, I just want to clarify one thing. That um, one of the reasons so many musicians come to London is because there is a huge music scene here. And that means that there are that many people that you're able to share music with and therefore find the people that you're able to express music with. So there's so there are plenty of musicians here that have um, uh, opened their arms to interaction with me in the way that I I adore and I love, and that that's why I love being here in this city. Um, but yes, unfortunately, I have felt at times, you know, a, a pressure as a female vocalist to tick certain boxes, and I think. Um, I think the image one feels they should exude as a female singer should be one maybe of sex appeal or sensuality or something like that. And I, <laughs> well, first of all, I don't think that comes very naturally to me, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but also I can't stand that. I can't stand that image of a jazz singer, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer draped over the piano in, what was it, Fe Fabulous Baker Boys or whatever, you know, People always applaud that kind of jazz singer with a smoky, sultry tone. I mean, would you describe Betty Carter as that? Now, baby, that's a jazz singer, you know? If your style of singing comes out as sincerely being sultry, then that's amazing. And I bet somehow it won't come across as needing to be sexy. If it's sincere, it'll probably come out with great charm and dignity, filled with class, you know? But for me, I feel sometimes female vocalists have to fit that description of basically being rather sexy and I can't stand that to me you're one of my favorite singers of what we call standards so I was gonna ask you to maybe explain to our listeners what we mean by standards when we talk about them and what is it about standards that have attracted you to perform those as a major part of your repertoire so in 2012 I came to London and still then I was actually writing music for library um, so I still hadn't started really singing jazz until 2014 so it's not really that long ago so so for me I'm still in I, I think I've now reached that stage where I'm starting to understand who I am as a jazz singer so this is coming to your initial question about singing standards if this has been my first six years say of singing those first six years should be learning everything you can about the American songbook it is your job as a jazz singer to have a great large healthy repertoire you know I don't think you can call yourself a jazz singer without starting out like that call me a traditionalist so be it but I think it's really important because the repertoire is what made the jazz era. You can't escape that. If you want to become, a, 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 you know, if you want to go into free jazz later on, that's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. But that's where you learn your rudiments and your, your, your tools from the standards. Every single standard has something uh, memorable might have a tag it might have a funny bridge something funny happens at the bridge or or you know there's a there's a quirky lyric in this one or it's always something that defines each standard and it just every time you add one of those to your repertoire your treasure box gets heavier and heavier and heavier and that's why those jazz standards are really important to learn 
and I should explain what a jazz standard is. Uh, sorry, a jazz standard is uh, the songs um, uh, that started out in Broadway and were written by the composers of Broadway and were they're later on made famous by jazz singers. Sorry, I missed that bit. <laughs> I think also with with jazz, we're very fortunate to have standards because for me they're almost like I guess I I would compare them to maybe sonnets or something where you've just got these like tiny little snapshots what a wonderful are, comparison like sonnets that's wicked they're so Sorry. densely packed full of the stuff that makes jazz in mm-hmm. these tiny they could even be like a 12 bar or 32 bar song like a, t- a tiny piece of music mm-hmm. but it's so rich with like the stuff that makes jazz like the molecular makeup of jazz i guess a bit like um you know bach cello suites or, or partitas or you know those kind of like small little nuggets of music that are actually just so richly packed with 100 you know what makes jazz what it is essentially absolutely so by learning all of these standards and getting them in your repertoire you're you know, by learning these small pieces of music, you're actually expanding your sort of vision and language as a jazz musician. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and you'll see that even with a lot of those hard bop musicians, uh, 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 always the, their first couple of albums that they've ever taken part in will be albums with standards on before they started releasing a lot of their own music because they understand the importance of the tradition. And the tradition is the repertoire. You know, so just even though Charlie Parker wrote all those amazing heads on the chord changes of other standards, he knew those standards, every single one of them, you know, before he changed the face of jazz. So So with this song, did you set out to write a standard per se or was the form like the standard form just the kind of canvas that presented itself to you as the thing that would allow you to express your story in the perfect way i i did want to write something that sounded uh traditional because i think a lot of people are uh, um afraid to write songs that sound like that because they fear that it might sound like a pastiche of something but um i think it's uh well, firstly, good for your songwriting because it's not easy to write a song that's in the style of a traditional jazz standard. And I guess I was mainly singing standards then, so it was it was in my mind to to write something like that. I'm very I'm very attracted by a lot of those old jazz standards, like you know, Body and Soul and The Nearness of You, and so my idea of trying to write something like that was uh, a real challenge real challenge yeah i think it was a deliberate choice was there an element of this song that came first was it say the melody or the chords or the lyrics most of the compositions at the start uh, a lyric will come with the melody at the same time when i'm at the piano so um i might be playing some chords that i like the sound of and then the melody and lyric comes together that's usually what happens with me yeah and 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 I think that goes to show that there's an emotion that you need to get off your chest, as it were. You know, when those two two things come together. It's a recent song that I've written and <laughs> um, the first line is 
I want the world spinning round and round on my terms. And that first line, I really, I really felt frustrated at the piano that I that I was that that I wasn't getting at something out musically that something that in deep down inside me musically that I needed to get out and I wanted I wanted people to understand. And then the story grew to be something else, but that first line remained. It stayed. It stayed. I want the world spinning round and round on my terms. And on my terms, it goes to a dissonant note because it might not be what other people want, you know? So that, that, that sentence has stayed and then the song has become something else. So I think it usually stems from a stimulus of emotion that you need to get out. And then it plays out naturally, you know? So out of almost anyone I work with, I find that when you sing you squeeze the most emotion and meaning from every word almost like every syllable it feels like you're playing with the light and shade of all the vowels and the consonants in each word when you're writing lyrics do you consider do you consider like the timbre of the words as well as the meaning as you're writing them yes most definitely um but i have to add one thing uh, to, to your very, very kind words, Tommy, <laughs> very kind words. I, I, I think that having been a cellist, that has helped um, in terms of uh, sounds that I might make with my voice or timbres that I might create with my voice in order to to enchant the lyric. Um, you know, it is by nature that you work very, very hard on, 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 the, on your, say, for me, it was the cello. I worked very hard on being able to produce a huge array of sounds and timbres from my instrument. So I think that's had a huge impact on the way that I use my voice. But definitely now that I'm gifted with the um, the chance to use lyrics as, as a musician, which I didn't as a cellist, it's, it's, it's even more so uh, that I perhaps play with sound to portray uh, an emotion from the lyric. And I... I think that's one of my favourite things about being a singer. You got my heart on the string Entwined in your arms as you pull me in the joy out of spring Darling Got my heart on the string So I always really enjoy songs that initially hide the true intent so I guess for me things like um, do you know I want to be around Oh yes um, Yeah the, the, when Frank Sinatra sang it with the Basie band yeah. I think Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the first line, I want to be around, you don't really know what's happening. It just sounds kind of like a uh-huh. quite hip swinging tune. And then the next line is to pick up the pieces when somebody breaks your heart. <laughs> Boom. In the case of your song, you know, you've we've we get this really elongated first word, you, in this kind of major key. It's a ballad. It could just be another love song. But you've elongated the word you so we're we're drawn into this we're not quite sure which way it's going to go and then suddenly we start finding that things are maybe a little bit 
amiss. Was this deliberate? Did you try and set out to toy with us as listeners, a bit like the characters being toyed with in the song? Well, um, uh, I think that I wasn't aware of making you so long, but now that you say that... <laughs> It, it has it has been brought to my attention. Uh, I, I think I, I was preparing for the for the swoop upwards. You got my heart on her. So I was preparing for that. So I thought if I had if I'd started with movement, then I wasn't going to be able to do that swoop upwards because then it would be too much. So maybe I uh, I was thinking of creating the illusion of kind of stillness and and peace before you have that upward surge to what is essentially like augmented an augmented chord so you so I I wanted to create that image as someone rather like with a rope or a string pulling me upwards towards him but that thing that he's pulling me up with doesn't feel good so the chord that I land in land on with the string is is a sharp five you know it's 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 unsettling um so there's hints of of this song not turning out so well but um as you say it's just a small hint it's a very small preparation for the listener um that was deliberate yeah (laughs) the the melody is also filled with quite big intervals i mean it sounds to me as you know not really a singer it sounds quite hard to sing um all these big intervals it 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 kind of adds to this feeling of the the protagonist being kind of being pulled around by this person like a puppet you know well that um that's very observant of you and 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 that was also intentional i wanted i wanted it to sound uh i didn't want it to sound effortless when i was singing it i wanted it to sound like it was I, I was going through a difficulty, you know, um, but I wanted to make sure that these big intervals that I was go- that, that I was about to sing, I wanted to try and do it as sweetly as possible so that you could feel the innocence of the person being pulled around and that still the listener does not know that things are going to go wrong yet. Entwined in arms as you pull me in. It still sounds quite sweet and playful, but those intervals are suggesting that that person is being pulled around, and and hence the word entwined. <laughs> you know, entwined sounds like a wonderful thing, but <laughs> but it's it's it could be to either way, so it's ambiguous. You know, the, the 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 most important thing about this song, and that I was. I was conscious about because as you can hear from the intro is that this whole song is about chromaticism it's um every single entrance of a phrase has a chromatic approach so I always wanted to f- to have that feeling of of, of um, feeling unsettled uh, I I I I love chromatic stuff. <laughs> That's one of my things that I love the most. So I went for something that I'm attracted to, but I still use, I still try to use it in a way that it was always obeying the song, what was best for the music. I didn't just put chromaticism in there for the hell of it because I love it. it. It had to serve both purposes. Yeah. There's, there's a really good um, Leonard Bernstein lecture where he talks about chromatic porridge oh i don't know if you've seen that no but um is this um basically he's he's talking about different types of music and different eras and and things and 
I think he's saying that almost sort of without context and without meaning, music that has lots of chromaticism that doesn't resolve and it doesn't lead anywhere just becomes chromatic porridge. <laughs> and I, I've always I've always really enjoyed that That's term. A really, really good term. <laughs> I'm adding yeah. that one to my library up here. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. I think that's the name The name of your next album, I think. <laughs> Chromatic Forage. <laughs> oh, jeepers. You never let me go Through those windswept days Of driving rain How will I ever learn to grow You could have carried me like a flame burning in your soul Darling, why keep my heart on your string? The A sections have this, as you've talked about, this kind of augmented rising melodic figure. But when we get to the bridge, things just take this big downward spiral. Stuff gets darker and more twisted and more sour was this kind of a conscious decision yeah because this was you know this was going to be the moment that I admitted that to everybody that I feel like I'm choking that this this person is loving me for all the wrong reasons he doesn't see who I am in front of him and I'm choking here and uh, that's why actually if you hear my vocal performance of it. I mean, not, it's probably because I had rubbish breath control, but I genuinely, <laughs> I genuinely wanted the listener to, to hear that I was running out of breath, that I, that that's why it's basically straight quavers all the way through. There's not one uh, rest. Uh, so yeah, it's quite relentless, it's isn't relentless. it? It's relentless. Kind of, it just plummets. Mm, and you can, you can hear the place where I go, <gasps> where I, catch the one breath in order to hold the last note of the bridge because it also has a ritardando it also slows down at the end so not only is it constantly you know um moving in a perpetual way but it also writs at the end of the bridge but it it gives the illusion that the bridge is is eight bars but it's not it's four bars but it still gives the illusion that the bridge is lasting for a long time because it's relentless but it's actually only four bars long yeah so um so it's a funny thing it's kind of over before you know it <laughs> but but it's re- it's it feels torturous yeah I, I like that you're putting yourself through this kind of artistic self-flagellation <laughs> <laughs> in order to get the most out of your own soul could that be something you want to talk about sarah <laughs> <laughs> My world became so silent In your cruel fascination My eyes shone bright like diamonds Was I just in your imagination? The song, it sort of features these shifts from this kind of, as you're saying, this kind of sweet nostalgia. But then there's always, there's kind of this tinge of bitterness and melancholy and what kind of other things have you done to achieve this when you were writing it well I should perhaps say what Rob Barron did in this um uh out, you know out of respect for the fact that he co-wrote this with me um since since this piece of music I haven't co-wrote with anybody actually so 
but I do see the benefits in co-writing with someone because the way um, basically Rob helped me with with the bridge section of this song because it was my very first jazz composition uh, and he kind of being a piano player which I urge all singers to embark upon <laughs> is to try and play some piano because <laughs> it's just really important for <laughs> in every single way but if you want to sit and try and write songs and and then take it to a better pianist that's fine but to kind of sketch out the idea of a song I think it's useful to have some simple piano skills um so I had an idea of what I wanted the bridge to do but you know Rob was very very clever in the fact that he the way he starts is this bridge you know it goes to the relative minor but actually it's it's a, it's a stalled attempt to go into D minor so actually it, the, the the bridge kind of feels the bridge feels like it's connected to the A sections, but it's not. And that's why it takes this huge downward turn, you know? So it actually, it's just basically a, a glorified two minor into five, you know, going to the E minor, then goes to D minor. And then, and then um, basically, then it just does a two five into G. So he's, he's basically stalling the resolution back to A. He's constantly stalling and delaying that. And I think it's really, really clever because the whole of the bridge section isn't actually doing much harmonically, but it's so embellished that you feel like there's movement, but actually you're stuck. So it's really quite clever what he's done harmonically with the lyrics and the melody. And I think that's someone that's... So, so that, I mean, that, that's the beauty of being able to work with a really great piano player, someone that has a lot of experience in the way harmony works. So I think I learned a lot from writing this piece with Rob and why I've been able to do more on my own now, you know? You got my heart on a string Like a fool I've stayed The colours drain from everything And a love like ours Couldn't get any worse than this No has waned, it grows thin. So one of the things I love about this song is the fact that all of the A sections have a slightly different approach. And there are plenty of standards where the A sections are quite similar. But in this one, there's... I mean, for me, the first one is kind of a bit... sort of laments the fact that this lover has a bit of control over you the second one has this kind of questioning element like why would you do this to me and then the the last one is this mm -hmm. is just so tragic <laughs> because you've got this kind of like you know you you're flattening the seventh and the sixth note in the melody which has this kind of like it's almost like a sigh yeah. and then the the bass line has you know it's chromatically descending yeah. everything's kind of just like oh like all hope is lost and then the mel melody as the bass line is chromatically descending at the end the melody chromatically goes up yeah. yes you got this like contramotion yeah. yeah i mean i i think another thing that writers um should definitely experiment with is rhythm in the melody and uh and i think there's a few things i can point out in this song um there's the one line um through those windswept days of driving rain, 
how will I ever learn to grow? And so through those windswept days of driving rain, and so there's that feel of incessant pouring down of rain. <laughs> and so there's that kind of repeat of the rhythm, but then the only way that, the, but that that little fragment of rhythm is exactly the same notation next time, but one note is just out by one by one semitone so it's exactly the same fragment of music but it's just slightly different so there's that persistent relentless feeling that you've been through a lot and then at the end the rhythm is kind of thrown away how will I ever learn to grow you know the way a young child would almost say to a parent you know just just give me the space to be myself how how am I going to know what to do if you don't let me go you know, so rhythm, rhythm in the melody can, can achieve that, exactly what you want to say. And I think that as a jazz singer, when you get given a standard, most of the time we do not sing the rhythm that's on the sheet music. We improvise with our own rhythm in order to express the song. So I think when I came to writing this song as a jazz singer, I, I did it in the way that I might sing a jazz standard, you know. But it, it, on, a jazz, on a jazz lead sheet, it would never be written like that. You know, it might be it might be written as how how will I ever learn to grow? You know, not how will I ever learn to grow? But I actually wrote the rhythm down because I really wanted someone to sing it like that. You know, my world became so silent in your cruel fascination. My eyes shine bright like diamonds Was I just in your imagination? You got my heart on the string Like a fool I stayed The colors drained from So we've had a listen to your song and I've been asking all of my guests a few questions at the end. So firstly, I'd really like to know what the best piece of advice you've ever been given is. Well, um, can I say several really quickly so I don't take too much time? Go for it. <laughs> OK, uh, recently, um, the great altruist Charles McPherson, I heard him say something on a on a Zoom chat that I had with a few other people. And um, he, he said, uh, there's always more than one way to the water. And I think that that's a very good um, image to have in mind when you're practicing, especially practicing on your improvisation. There's always more than one way to get to the water. And I, I think that's a very valuable piece of advice whether it may be rhythmically, harmonically, melodically, you know. Um, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm, that's the recent one I've heard and I'm going to take that on. Um, but the one that really sticks out of my mind was one uh, when I was 18 years old on my 18th birthday. Uh, I played to Yo-Yo Ma and it was in the Bridgewater Hall 
uh, and I remember uh, shaking with fear. Um, and I was about to go on and play, play Brahms F, cello sonata. And um, the, the, out the, in the auditorium, there were lots of members of the public, but a majority of the audience was made up of cellists. <laughs> so can you imagine a sea of cellists? Because, of course, Yo-Yo Ma was here to play. And um, he was going to give me a masterclass on Brahms F. So I was the guinea pig on my 18th birthday. And I was shaking with fear, and he, he saw that I was um, shaking. And um, he, said, uh, he said to me, um, um, and my mind was a com complete pandemonium, he said, what do you think music's for, Sarah? Uh, he says, it's a silly question to ask you right now, isn't it, when you're about to go on in two minutes? I, I said, oh, well, what do you mean, what, what is music for? Uh, and uh, he said, Sarah, music is a service. It's not a transaction. You are going to go out. You're not going to go out and, you know, sell the perfect product to all those people sat out there. Music was designed to bring people together, to create a sense of community. You are going to go and give the most precious thing to so many people sat out there. So don't think of it like it's a transaction, like it's going to lead you to somewhere in your career. It's not going to. And I thought that was a really valuable piece of advice because he said it's a service for the people. It's about giving. And that's what music is. And if you can bear, if you can bear that in mind, that absolute, it will keep your love for this art form, I think. So I've always tried to remember that. I think there are a lot of people in high up places that need to hear that quote. <laughs> But we'll yeah, move on. So it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so let's imagine that someone has come to you and they're just starting their journey into the creative side of their music making. And maybe they're struggling a bit to get off the ground. Aside from those brilliant quotes that you've just given me, from your personal experience, what kind of what would be a one piece of advice that maybe you'd give to them? Well, first of all, I want to say that this is a great question, but I'm going to uh, play devil's advocate here because, I, I mean, why would someone starting out feel like they're struggling to get off the ground? That's my question to this question. You know, don't get me wrong. It's a great question. It means that this individual is, you know, heading for a goal uh, to get his career off to a start. Wouldn't playing to the highest standard and to the best of your ability be a good start? You know, perhaps making sure that every time you appear in public, your playing becomes worthy of praise from your peers and audience members. And we all look at each other's achievements and feel we should, you know, ascertain those goals to feel worthy. But to me, someone starting out should be too busy in their creative process. And if it's channeled towards a single commercial goal, then creativity will get lost. It will. I feel it's useful to kind of perhaps read about the lives of really great musicians before social media came along to see what their musical trajectory was. And you will find that usually they were looking at their elders and um, uh, breaking down their music and uh, reading about subjects around music. So don't just immerse yourself in music, immerse yourself in lots of different forms of art because you'll find all your musical answers there. How are you supposed to have anything to say as a musician, if you don't feed your art. So I would bother yourself with that starting your career than 
trying to get your feet off the ground. That's probably terrible advice because someone's thinking, yeah, well, you don't have to pay my rent. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Do you have a piece or an album or something that you think you'll always go back to no matter what? You don't think you're going to tire of it? Um, if I had a piece of music, it would be Tchaikovsky, Sixth Symphony, Last Movement, Pastique. And if it was an album, it would have to be Charles Mingus plays piano. Um, yeah, I listened to that album incessantly when I was about 15. Um, that album is an absolute example of someone finding more than one way to get to the water. If nice, you know I mean. you've linked two <laughs> questions um, together. You know, I've linked to the, you know, he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, perhaps it's because the bass player is playing the piano, so he... So he has a kind of different idea of how he wants the piano to sound, but it's the most original piano playing I've ever heard. It's a call, it's a spontaneous compositions and improvisations. It's absolutely outstanding. Yeah. So for an originality and creativity, I always go back to that album and the, the Tchaikovsky Symphony just because of the amount of emotion that that composer has achieved in that final mov movement. I don't think there's any other mu piece of music that could come quite close to that. In your opinion... What makes a great composer? Um, someone that can define themselves in their music, but um, at the same time reach the heart of everybody without bending their creativity to suit album sales. That is a great quote. <laughs> um, this might link to a question we've already had, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Which musical moment gives you the biggest rush of emotion or goosebumps? Okay, well, I, 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 it comes back to that Tchaikovsky Symphony because, yeah, I, yeah, I knew you'd realise that. <laughs> I, th I think because they're, I think one of my favourite musical devices, oh, sorry, I didn't wear that correctly. I think one of my favourite aspects of the way music is, fit, is fitted together um, is tension and release in harmony. I think that's my favourite thing and that that last movement is a is an absolute example of that you know most of the la most of the final movement is just scales moving up and down scales but the way he shifts the harmony around those scales it's it's uh, it's relentless and uh, it gives me goosebumps every time I hear that because even though the melody is doing something obvious the harmony is twisting and turning your feeling despite the melody doing something really quite straightforward. It's genius. You can ask one composer anything. Who would it be and what would you ask? Okay, well, I think if I was going to ask one composer something, it would ha it, it's actually uh, a jazz trumpeter. I would ask Booker Little, um, with whom there's no better authority to ask. He studied orchestration and classical composition at, con uh, at a conservatoire. But um, he was also, as, as I've already said, a jazz trumpeter. And he was concerned with conventional precepts in which his music was rooted. Um, but he was trying to find out how to make his musical, musical education nourishing rather than taint or restrain his music. Um, and I would love to get him back from the grave and say, Booker, how can I make all this musical education that I've had allow my music to come out always so naturally and freely and without borders, without, without it being constrained in any way. I'd love that. 
which composer would you bring back to life in order to see their reaction to not only today's music, but maybe also the performance of their music? It'd have to be Bach and Charlie Parker together. <laughs> Both of those. Uh, but I, I kind of see them as the same thing. Bach and Charlie Parker, they, they kind of did the same thing, but one just came much later. Um, I, I think I'd just be interested for them to, to generally see the way we perform music now and, and what makes music popular. I think, I think they'd be shocked. I don't know why. I, d- I don't have a very clear answer to that. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a, a blank check for a project. What would you do with it? I don't have any money, but this is just uh, uh, <laughs> for the purpose of the question. That's a great question. I was like, do you know what? Do you know what I'll do, Tommy? I think I'll take two or three years out of being a working musician and I would go and study orchestration with someone because I think I feel like having worked so many years on one instrument and now being a singer I feel like I haven't got the full picture of the you know I I haven't got as as much of the picture as I'd like and I think sitting down and knowing how to really arrange and compose would be incredible so that's what i do i go and pay for a whole massive load of lessons <laughs> you can yeah. go to any concert gig rehearsal recording session in history what would you go and see this is a hard one do you know actually um i have a very clear idea in my mind because i mean i, I okay i would like to go to any one of charlie parker's gigs but something that's uh, a little different i would like to have been at the premiere of gershwin's rhapsody in blue because um, I recently watched um, an entire uh, documentary about Gershwin and it was really uh, astounding, some of the footage of that first performance. It was in 1924 and there were people like Rachmaninoff in the audience. There was uh, Chrysler, the violinist, uh, Stokowski, the conductor. I mean, there were some real musical giants in the audience. And this was a concert that was called An Experiment in Modern Music. And it was given by um, the Paul Whiteman band, you know. And um, apparently there was like 11 songs, on, sorry, not songs, there were 11 uh, pieces performed uh, on the programme. Well, the 11th one was Rhapsody in Blue. And the, apparently the audience were getting a little irksome and uh, ruffling their papers and starting to get a bit um, frustrated and, and bored. And when the Rhapsody in Blue started and the clarinet just soared, the, apparently the, 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 um, the review of that concert that I read is incredible. The whole audience just was astounded, completely quiet. And it was one of those... Mind, it was one of those t- time-altering moments in music where he allowed American jazz to fuse with classical and it was mind-blowing. And I would have liked to have been there to see that, to see that change in music that, you know, Lennon Bernstein later on did, you know, but Gershon was the first one. That was great. Thanks. I was really mesmerised by that story. <laughs> so both of us, we've both been through... Um, specialist music schools and we've had a lot of training what would you put in place to make music education veer more towards creativity and self-expression if i'm going to be brutally honest (laughs) 
I, I kind of have a little problem with those two words juxtaposed, um, education and cre creativity. And I'm not saying that I'm down on, on education because I don't know what I would have done without my education. But I think it is important to make a little delineation between those two things. That, um, yes, you must have complete command of your instrument to be able to play with creativity and for you to be able to express what you want to express on your instrument. But you must always preserve your spirit to be inquisitive, to think beyond your lectures, to think beyond your lessons and continue to do your own research and allow anything, anything that attracts you in music um, uh, f for you to investigate whatever excites you music find out why it does and incorporate that into your own tool set because then you will become an artist you will find out who you really are so how can we follow sarah dowling and know what you're up to and all of that kind of stuff um, I'm, well i mean talking about creativity uh, i i feel like this lockdown has been uh, rather a strange time for me and I think it's uh, given me the space to accept that I am perhaps moving in a slightly different direction musically um, and I'm starting to incorporate all of my experience as a musician and putting it into my, this new album of uh, quite a lot of originals on there um, and they all sound very different to anything that I've written before and I'm allowing all those influences to now kind of come together. Uh, and it feels like it's taken a long time for me to get to that point, but um, it's happening now. And so that, that that's kind of, so basically I'm hoping to release a new album next year. Um, I mean, you can, you can follow me on my, my website, um, www zaradowling.co.uk and I have two albums on there which perhaps a little bit more traditional on the traditional side of things um, and I still love listening to those albums to this day I feel very proud of them and they've made me who I am great thank you and thanks for your time it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show and have your absolutely unique take on on singing standards and writing songs and and also you know coming from your background as an instrumentalist and and transitioning into something new new and in, into a new identity i hope that might give people courage to do a similar thing who maybe feel like they haven't settled and oh yeah you know there's there's so much pressure for us as musicians to once we've invested so much time in something you know let's say we've been studying something since we were a kid and then something doesn't feel quite right, it's really hard to then try and negotiate to shift to something else, you know, with yourself because you might have been doing something for, say, 18 years or something and mm -hmm. and you think, like, oh, I've invested all this time, how can I possibly waste that? But you're a living example of how that hasn't been wasted because all of that stuff has, has just fed into your creativity and fed into who you are and, and what comes out when you sing. Uh, absolutely. And I think it's very easy to kind of be down on yourself if you do decide to essentially turn your back on something you've been doing for such a long time. That's that's what it felt like when I gave up the cello. I felt like I turned my back on myself 
and it felt so terrible for such a long time. But my wounds were were healed by this new thing that I discovered and I realised that it was only because I was brave and following my heart that I um, was able to kind of heal those insecurities of walking away from something that I thought I should be doing, you know? Thank you so much for being so open about everything and and um, it's been such a pleasure to to have you on the show and really nice to see you. It's been so long. You too. <laughs> I can't wait <laughs> Thank to... Thank you uh, so much. Can't wait to play again someday. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. London City Big Band. Yeah. <laughs> I miss those sessions. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much and... Um, Hopefully see you soon. You too. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you. The Amazing Sarah Dowling. The next episode on the 2nd of March will feature pianist, composer and educator Pete Latanka. We will be exploring his piece Hope and Glory, commissioned by Music for Youth for their 2016 prom season. It's a reimagining of Land of Hope and Glory from Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance but with more of an emphasis on equality, dignity and standing side by side to make the world a better place for everyone. See you on the 2nd of March. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep in touch, visit us at soundspring.co.uk. You can connect with us on Instagram by searching for soundspringpod or you can send us an email at soundspringpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If you like what you've heard, please spread the word and don't forget to give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to reach new listeners. If you enjoy the show and want to support our podcast, you can donate or become a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash soundspringpodcast. Obviously, we encourage you to go and buy our guests' music. But once you've done that, and only once you've done that, You can also stream most of the music featured in the show by searching for the Soundspring podcast playlist in Spotify. And finally, I'd like to thank Katie Stevenson for her beautiful artwork. Please go and follow her work on social media by searching for Cub and Bloom. This is Tommy Andrews signing off until next time. So I didn't want to mention this before in case you got a bit insulted and didn't want to do the rest of the podcast. But my son, Leo, who's four, has um, slightly changed your lyrics, I'm afraid. And he's been wandering around the house singing, you've got my fart on a string. <laughs> that is that is the version that would have sold copies. So, <laughs> yeah, that's so I, I really missed something there. <laughs>